Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. I'm glad we all got that extra hour of sleep, right? We used our time wisely. We didn't stay up extra late because we knew we'd get an extra hour, right? Just me? Okay. Yeah, good morning. Hey, when you have a great thing, you kind of want to show it off a little bit. That's just human nature. If you get a, if you get a great new vehicle... There's just something inside of you that wants to drive it around town, show your friends, share it because it's, you're happy. It's a great thing. Or, or if you get a, a big new TV, you want to invite people over to watch the game and you want to show it off a little bit. Or if you get a, a fun new outfit, you know, you want to wear it on the town and look good, fellas. I know that's what we all think when we get that fun new outfit, right? You want to show it off a little bit. When you got something great, you want to show it off. And that's okay. That's human nature. But there are wise ways to show off a little bit, and then there are some rather foolish ways to show off a little bit. Case in point, the Chatham family. Just a, a, a normal all-American family decided they wanted to take a great vacation to Las Vegas, Nevada. And when they touched down, they were so excited. They started taking pictures, taking pictures of the cities, getting the selfie, took a picture of their hotel. They posted it on social media because they were just happy and they wanted to share off this great thing. And some of their friends were happy for them and, and wanted to share in that excitement. And so they started posting questions like, oh, I didn't know you guys were going to be gone. How long are you going to be out there? And they answered online for everyone to see just how long their house would be empty for. And some thieves took advantage of that and went to their home, back to U-Haul up to the garage, and started loading all of the Chatham family's great things into the back of that moving truck. Thankfully, police were driving by, just happened to see it, and they caught them, and, and so everybody ended up okay, except for the robbers. They're in jail. But it just goes to show you, there are good ways to show off a little bit, and then there's some rather foolish ways to show off a little bit. We've been talking about some pretty great things that we have for the past few weeks now in the series called Greater Things. We've been looking at the gospel and the greater things that God affords us through the gospel that this world could never dream of matching. We have a greater hope, we have a greater future, we have a greater home, we belong to a greater people, a greater kingdom. It's all ours because of the work of Jesus on the cross. That's a great thing. And when you have a great thing, you want to show it off a little bit, right? But just like everything else we talked about, there are wise ways to go about that, and then there are foolish ways to go about that. The question is, how do we show off the greater things of God as the church in wise and beneficial ways? That's the question we're asking this morning. If you weren't with us last week, just to kind of catch you up to speed, like I said, we've been talking about the greater things God affords us through the gospel. And one of the greater things is belonging in his church. The church, for all of its faults and flaws right now, really is God's greater thing on the world. It's how he's working in this world. It's the people his presence is found in. We are a blessed, blessed community. And the people in the book of 1 Peter that are receiving that letter in the ancient world, they were a part of that greater thing called the church. But the world around them didn't really seem to recognize it. They were making life difficult for these early believers. And there was social pressure to question the faith. There was economic pressure. Sometimes there was physical safety motivating them to question, is this great faith really so great after all? And that's why Peter wrote this letter, the book of 1 Peter, to encourage them. And he's been encouraging them for the first chapter and a half as we've been going through for the last three weeks now. 
And eventually the people hear everything has to, uh, Peter has to say about the greatness of this faith and this great thing called the church that they belong to. And they're starting to say, you're right, Peter. This is a great faith. This is worth it. But how do we get the rest of the world to see that? How do we show it off a little bit? It's the question that you and I are asking this morning. And Peter gives some really beneficial instructions, starting at this section of his letter, moving all the way through the end of it. And we're going to be looking at that through the rest of this series for the next three weeks, I believe, if I did my calendar math right. So if you have your Bibles with you, why don't you open with me to the book of 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 11. So if you have your Bibles, 1 Peter 2.11. If you don't have your Bibles, you can follow along on the screens to the side. Or you can download the FCC Monmouth app to your mobile device. Tap the Sunday button in the bottom right-hand corner. You'll find our passage pulled up along with all of the, the notes to follow along with. Take your own notes. Get the most out of our time together this morning. So like I said, the, the rest of the letter of 1 Peter really is a game plan for showing off the greater things of God that are found in the gospel. And the intro to this plan is pretty simple. It's something that all of us can, can grasp and start to put into practice immediately. It has to do with how we live our lives. The conduct of our lives is like a giant billboard, really. It sends a message. And the conduct of the church is no exception. It's our first line of witness to the gospel's greatness. It's found in how we live. That's how he starts in verse 11. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So before we even really get into the meat and potatoes of this passage, I just want to draw attention to how his audience is addressed right there at the beginning in verse 11. Dear friends, as foreigners and exiles, abstain from sinful desires. Foreigners and exiles. This is a, a, a series of terms and ideas that's, that's shown up again and again throughout this letter and throughout our series so far. It's the reminder that when we said yes to Christ... And we said yes to all of the greater things of the gospel that God yearns for us to experience. At the same time, we said no to this world. We said no to the things it offers. We said no to its ways. We said no to belonging here. This is not our home. This is not where we belong. We live here, but our citizenship is not here. You know, when we said yes to Christ, everything about us changed. And that includes our conduct, as it turns out. Because in that very next word, Peter says, abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. More literally, if we were to look at the Greek text, if you didn't know the New Testament's written in Greek, it says the sinful des or the desires of the flesh is a little more literal translation. I'm going to use that phrase a lot, so I just want you to know what we're talking about here. Desires of the flesh, the outward person, and the cravings. And then he says they wage war against our soul, this inner person, the work that God's doing within us through his Holy Spirit. We've got the whole person in view here, outward, inward. And we need to remember that and take that into consideration when we think about what are these sinful desires, these cravings of the flesh. Because usually when we hear that phrase, there's a list of usual suspects that kind of come to mind. You know, like greed, envy, jealousy, you know, rage, wrath, drunkenness, sexual stuff. Like, these are the usual suspects that show up when we hear the cravings of the flesh. 
But by mentioning the soul and this inward person, Peter's kind of reminding us that the, the sinful desires of our being are a lot more than just what the outer person craves. There are deep-seated desires emanating from our hearts that sometimes go overlooked because they don't hit the usual list of suspects, or list of usual suspects. For example, if we were to live in a culture of insult like these early Christians did, there might be this temptation, this kind of yearning inside of us to respond to those insults with a kind of tit-for-tat retaliation. We kind of validate ourselves through verbal sparring and, and jabbed comments. If we lived in a, a culture of abuse like these early Christians, we might be tempted to, to vindicate or validate ourselves through kind of a subversive retaliation. You know, like maybe your boss has just given you an unduly hard time. He's kind of singled you out for some reason. And he's just really sticking it to you. And it doesn't seem fair. And, and you're not in a position to really argue with him about it. But you do come to realize, you know, you could really stick it to him if you just accidentally lost some paperwork. Or maybe if you were just a little less productive and kind of accidentally fell behind, you could really make his quarterly bonus shrink drastically. You know, and, and, and it, who's to say, you know? And it's this kind of subversive vengeance that we are tempted to take at times. If we lived in a, in a culture of argument, and a culture of debate, we might be tempted to respond with these kind of uh, snarky, one-upsmanship kind of remarks. And I'm saying what if, as if we don't actually live in that culture already, but we really do. We live in a culture where insult is pretty normal, where various kinds of abuse are normal, where this culture of debate is normal and expected, where ridicule is the, is the expected response to these things. If you spent 30 seconds on the internet, you can see that that's where our society is right now. And the question is, these desires, why do we feel this way? Why are we tempted to respond with kind of these comebacks, these snarky quips and so on? And the answer is there's, there's something that feels good about them. In this deep-seated little flame that desires vindication, validation, and vengeance, and so on, there's something satisfying to our flesh about these kinds of, of practices. The question is, even though the rest of the culture accepts it and expects it, is that the way that the church ought to respond to the world? Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Let's go, Brandon! Right? You've heard that, I'm sure. It's this cultural meme that's kind of made its way throughout our, our society. It's a response and meant as an insult to the current president. And admittedly, its origins are a little funny. Uh, Brandon Brown, he's a race car driver. He, uh, he won at Talladega Speedway. And he's being interviewed on camera. And as he's being interviewed about his victory, the crowd of fans behind him took the opportunity to chant in unison a rather offensive and pointed uh, message. To the president, hmm, Joe Biden, hmm, I can't say that word, you definitely fire me, hmm, you know, and the reporter who's conducting this interview, I, I don't know if it was just innocence or it was just an attempt to try to make the interview okay for TV, insisted, they're chanting for you, Brandon, they're chanting, let's go, Brandon, they were not, that was not what they were saying, and this has kind of become this subversive snarky kind of remark that very frustrated people can use as sort of this 
one-upsmanship, this kind of jabbed remark that, that validates their frustration and makes them feel a little better inside, satisfies that flickering desire of the flesh. But is it something that the church should practice or tolerate? Peter would ask the question a little differently. How does imitating the world differentiate us from the world as foreigners and exiles here? How does satisfying the sinful cravings of the flesh distinguish us somehow as part of something greater? That's the question. The answer is it doesn't. Side note, in full transparency, this was not a fun sermon to write because I have that same snarky, quippy, one-upsmanship desire of so many other people, and it's a little convicting to look in the mirror and know, you know what? Maybe you've not done a great job of modeling this. And that's true. I, I apologize. I've not always been great at modeling this. But I would encourage all of us to take a step back and ask the question, is this something that, that I resonate with? Is this desire of the flesh that we're talking about? Is it just the list of usual suspects? Or is there something in, in my behavior, in what I agree to, and what I perpetuate, and what I agree with and imitate in the culture that is keeping me from being distinguished as somebody different? Because our conduct, church, our conduct is our first line of witness to the great things of the gospel. No, we're not to imitate this world. Rather, Peter says, live such good lives among the pagans that even though they accuse you of doing wrong, they can't help but praise your God on the day that he visits us. Our conduct has the potential to send a message that there is something about the gospel that changes us, that makes us different. There's something about the gospel that does differentiate and distinguish our lives. Our conduct sends that message. Peter's essentially saying, live such good lives that even the haters can't help but admire your God and what he stands for. Is that the message that our lives are sending? That is a worthwhile question. Our conduct is our first line of witness when it comes to proclaiming and showing off the greater things of God in this world. Now, that's a, a valid idea and a great suggestion. The problem, though, is not agreeing with its validity. The problem is implementing it. That's where so many of us struggle. It's kind of like if I were to say, hey, if you're really stressed, just get out of debt, right? And you would probably say, oh, yeah, I'll just go do that this afternoon. I'll just get out of debt. We all understand the idea is valid. It's implementing it. It's a game plan that we all struggle with at times. And the same is true here. This conduct that conveys the greatness of the gospel, we all would say, yes, my life should be a testimony. How do I do that? What's the game plan? And that's where Peter's attention turns now in his letter. And he's going to be laying out a pretty easy to understand game plan for how we can start to live out the greatness of the gospel in our lives. And he starts by just looking at the various roles we play in this world. And the first one he looks at is our role in our relationship with civic authority. How we respond to civic authority has the potential to convey the greatness of the gospel and the difference that it makes. Let's keep reading what Peter has to say here. Look at verse 13. He says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. 
For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So Peter is speaking to, like we said, a group of early believers that are oppressed in many ways because of their faith. And a lot of that had to do with the climate they lived in politically. They lived in a region called Asia Minor, which is kind of where Turkey is today in that Mediterranean, Western Asian part of the world. And this was a central stronghold for something called the cult of the emperor, which is exactly what it sounds like. Emperor Caesar was worshipped as a living god. And people would make sacrifices to him, and they would sing praises to him, and they would have celebrations in his honor, and he would be worshipped as a god on the earth. And this was a widespread civic religion that sort of bound people together in a communal way. You know, it was kind of like the patriotism of the day, but it was also a religious activity. And the whole thing was endorsed by the emperor. So obviously there are some things about the government that are deeply at odds with this Christian faith. It says that there is only one God and we worship no other God. The question that people inevitably were asking was, how do we handle this? What should we do when it comes to this godless or, or, or this, this pagan emperor who insists he should be worshipped? And Peter's suggestion to his church is, submit to their authority. Honor them and obey them. And we might be tempted to ask, but Peter, these are not godly people. They're not leading this country in a godly direction. Are you sure that's how we ought to handle this? And Peter's response is unquestioningly, oh yeah, yeah, submit to the authorities. Because your relationship to this civic authority, your conduct towards them sends a message about the greatness of the gospel. Notice the motivation for his instruction here. It's there in the, in the beginning in verse 13. For the Lord's sake, submit to the governing authorities. It's not for the sake of, of fallible men and women. It's not because leaders and government in general are so worthwhile and worthy of our admiration. It's because God is worthy of our admiration. Because he is worthwhile and he desires us to live under this authority, that's why we do it. You see, our conduct as believers is not meant to be a response to this world. It's meant to be a response to our God. And that's a really important point that is going to show up again and again and again in this message and in this section of Peter's letter. Our conduct as followers of Jesus is not a response to the worthiness or lack thereof of this world. It is a response to the worthiness of God and his greater things. There's a secondary motivation here, though, too, in verse 15. It's God's will that we should live under these authorities, that they might be stripped of any reason to accuse us of wrongdoing. In other words, we're, we're taking away the ammunition and accusations of a culture that is watching these believers. That was really important in Peter's day and age. Because like we said, they lived under this cult of the emperor. So civil disobedience and lawlessness, it wasn't just a matter of legality. It was also a matter of morality. And in many ways, it was a, a matter of religiosity. 
any good, upstanding, worthwhile person is going to follow the commands of Caesar because he is this living God. Who are these Christians who are so lawless and so immoral as to discard the commands of the king, right? That would have been the attitude. Rejecting the authority of Caesar would have put a very bad taste in the mouths of a watching public and a watching world. How great could this gospel be if they live such reckless lives? That would have been the interpretation. Rather, Peter is instructing his church, live such good lives that they have no reason to accuse you of wrongdoing. It's, it's kind of like this idea of being a guest in somebody's house. You know, when you're a guest in, in someone's house, it's right and it's respectful and reasonable to follow their rules of the house to the best of your ability. Like when you were a kid and, and you were going to go spend the night at a friend's house, you're going to have a sleepover. You go home and you pack up your bag and before you walked out the door or got out of the car, your parents probably turned to you and said something along the lines of, behave yourself. Maybe they said, I love you after that, but it was probably behave yourself, right? Anybody else? A few of us, right? Why did our parents say that? Well, it's right, reasonable, and respectful to follow the rules of somebody else's house when you're a guest. But more importantly, they didn't want you to embarrass them, right? Nobody wants their kids to go over to somebody else's house and start raising a ruckus and being a hellion and disregarding all these rules and just making a mess of things. They don't want to be embarrassed by their kids. It's why you told your kids, behave yourself, whenever they went over to a friend's house. And that's essentially the motivation of what Peter is saying. Honor the authorities of this world because you're a guest in their house. You don't belong here, remember? Foreigners, exiles, you belong to God and to his kingdom, but you live in Caesar's house for the time being. So be a good guest and don't embarrass the name of your God through your conduct. Because your conduct has tremendous potential to speak to the greater things of God and his gospel. Now there's a caveat here. It's found in verse 16. Live as free people. But don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. We are free people because of the gospel. But that doesn't mean that we are autonomous people. We still answer to somebody. Because we are still owned by somebody. God paid the exorbitant price of Jesus' blood to purchase us. There was a transaction that took place. Redemption is at its heart a financial and economic term. Jesus was given in exchange for us. His death for our lives. Our sin for his righteousness. God has purchased us free and clear. He's got the title. It's called the book of life. We are owned by him and we live in reverence to him. You get to verse 17, that's made a little clear at the end there. Fear God, but honor the emperor. And those two mandates are not equally weighted, by the way. We are a guest in Caesar's house. We are a guest in this world. And so we honor him, and we honor his authority, and we respect it as good guests in the name of our God because we don't want to embarrass his gospel and we don't want to be irreverent to a watching world. But at the end of the day, Caesar and this world do not own us. 
They do not have power over us. We are free people who belong to God and to his kingdom. And that's why we don't just honor God. We fear him with a healthy and reverent fear because he does own us and he does have power over us. That's why we don't belong to this world. That's why we have the hope of salvation, because we have a great and glorious master. And we are happy to praise him and honor him with our lives. All this to say that our default temperament as people should be to honor the government and civic authorities. That doesn't mean we obey unquestioningly. Because there may come a point where the word of God and the mandates of men clash. And at that point, the people of God choose their king every single time. You may suspect there is an entire sermon's worth of material to hit the cutting room floor with this one point, especially given some of the things that have happened in our culture over the last week. So if you want to talk about that, I'd be happy to have that conversation. What does our current relationship as the people of God look like regarding mandates and so on in today's culture? I'd be happy to have that sometime. Just let me know. All that to say, our relationship to civic authority sends a message and our conduct has the potential to speak to the greater things of the gospel. But that's not all, because we're not just in a relationship with authorities. We're also in a relationship with society in general, with our community. And our conduct in a social context, in our societal roles, has that same potential to speak about the greatness of the gospel. And when we talk about societal roles, we mean the role you play in your local community, whether that be as a coach as a a parent of a kid playing on a sports team, as a neighbor, as a member of the PTA, as an employee or employer, uh, maybe you serve on a board somewhere. There are people whose lives you interact with and rub up against every single day, and we're part of society together. Our conduct in those relationships speaks a message. Peter chooses to convey this by writing to the lowest members of his society, slaves. He does that in verse 18. He says, slaves in reverent fear of God, Submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. So Peter is writing to servants and to slaves in this class of society. And he says, honor your masters, whether they are really good people or they're just a big old bunch of jerks, honor their authority. And there's part of us that probably reasonably says, that doesn't seem fair. Why would we live that way? And again, I would point to the motivation in this verse out of reverent fear, not of men, of God. Because we live under his authority, because it is pleasing to him and it is his will for us to do so and because he is worthy and great. We choose to live in society, honoring the societal authorities around us. The motivation for our conduct is not rooted in this world or its worth. It is rooted in our God and his worth and the greater things he has afforded us through the gospel. That is always our motivation. Like I said, that theme is going to continue to show up again and again. Specifically to these slaves, Peter is saying, live a good life, honor the authority. If you receive punishment because you have done wrong, that doesn't stand out or grab anybody's attention. That's just cause and effect. 
If you live as a raucous, rebellious person, you're going to suffer consequence. But if for some reason you suffer because you have done good, and more importantly, you maintain good, that's something that stands out to people because that's not normal. That's the kind of life that raises questions about why would you live that way? Why wouldn't you stick it to that guy? Why wouldn't you retaliate? Why wouldn't you insult him right back? You have this wide opening. Why wouldn't you take that dig and just really put him in his place, right? Why do you live the way that you live? Those are the kinds of questions that start to emanate from people's minds whenever they witness somebody who is markedly different in in this world. Somebody who lives differently and who doesn't blend in with the rest of the culture, but just stands out like a bright beacon. And that's what Peter is trying to convey to us. In our relationships to our community as neighbors, as employers and employees, as coaches, as people who serve on a board, in whatever societal role you play in the community of Monmouth and Warren County, you have the opportunity to send a message about the greater things of God through the way you conduct yourself. Not giving in to the sinful desires of the flesh, but living such a good life that people stand up and take notice and can't help but praise your God for His good. That is a powerful, powerful thing. But even as you probably guess, our societal roles are not the full extent of our lives. Many of us are sitting next to people that we care about deeply this morning. Even if we're not, we all have personal relationships with friends, with family, with spouses, with children, with grandparents, with grandchildren. We have personal relationships in our lives. And our conduct in those personal relationships also has the opportunity to talk about the gospel's greatness. That's where Peter goes as he starts to wrap this section up. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, Wives... In the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they might be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. Now, I want to make something clear. This isn't limited to wives. Peter is looking at these different sections of the world, and he's intentionally choosing the lowest members of those categories in his context. Whether it be people under the authority of the government or slaves. In this case, it would be women in the ancient world just didn't enjoy the same kind of authority that men did. That's not to say that women were, were second class. Many of them in the Roman world enjoyed clout and some influence. But at the end of the day, men just have a biological advantage over women as far as intimidation and power goes. And that often translated to authority in the ancient world. And men and husbands in particular could sometimes be domineering, they could be intimidating, sometimes they might be physical. And that wasn't all men, but it wasn't uncommon either. And Peter is looking at these wives, these wives of of men who do not believe the gospel, and he is saying to them, whether your husband is an awesome guy or he's kind of a jerk, I encourage you and implore you to live reverently before God. In verse 1 it says, in the same way, well, in the same way as what? What's he implying there? Well, in the same way that we live for the Lord's sake under the government's authority, in the same way that slaves live in reverent fear, in the same way that we don't respond to this world with our conduct, but rather we respond to God and his goodness in worship, in that same way, he's telling these ancient wives, live before your husbands that they might see the reverence and the beauty of your life and know there's something different there. And what's true of women in this ancient world would have been true for everybody. 
Because if the powerless can do it, then certainly men can do it. Husbands can do it. Sons, daughters, grandchildren, grand, grandparents. Everyone is capable of this. And that's the message here. In our personal relationships with the people that we care about, our conduct before them has the opportunity to send a message about the greatness of the gospel when they look at your life and see there's something different about the way that you love and about the way that you forgive, about the way that you bear up under unfair circumstance. We might look at Peter's instructions here and say, that's not fair. Like, why should anybody have to deal with the unfairness of somebody else's insults? Why should we have to humble ourselves and submit? That doesn't seem fair. And again, Peter is pointing out, it's not fair by the rules of this world, sure, but you don't belong to this world. You don't respond to this world with your conduct. That's not where your behavior is rooted. Your behavior, your conduct, your life, your hope is rooted in the goodness of God and what he has done for you through his gospel. You don't belong to that place. You belong here. That's the pattern that you follow. On that note, we've talked about this pattern a lot, and we've seen it show up in the way we live before authority and the government, before we live before our neighbors and society, before we live before our family and our loved ones. Where does this pattern come from that Peter keeps referencing? He could just make something up, but if he's just pulling it out of thin air, it doesn't carry a lot of weight. Thankfully, Peter has pretty good source material for basing these instructions off of. Look at chapter 2, verse 21. To this you were called... Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Here's what that example was. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. There's a word we've used often this morning. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins, what we might say the sinful desires of the flesh, and live for righteousness. For by his wounds you've been healed. Healed from this world, healed from its ways, healed from its fate for greater things. The example here is Christ. In fact, in, in verse 21 there, that word example, if we were to go back to Greek and look at it, we could look at how it's used in the ancient world. It talks about the way children would learn to write their letters, tracing these little dotted lines. You remember doing that as a kid? Turns out that's a really old practice, like thousands of years old. And that's essentially what Jesus' life was. It was a dotted line for us to follow after and imitate, to learn how to live as foreigners and exiles in this world. The pattern specifically was this. He was insulted and ridiculed. He was abused and mistreated and murdered, and yet he did not give in to the sinful desires of the flesh. The same desires and the same temptations you face, Christ faced those. He was fully God, but also fully man. Yet he did not indulge the desires of the flesh. He did not debase himself and respond and root his behavior and conduct as a response to this world and its sinfulness. Rather, his life, his conduct was a response to God and his goodness. He conducted his life as if someone were watching, the one who judges justly. That's the example and the pattern that's been set for us. 
We don't conduct ourselves as a response to this world and its sinfulness. We conduct ourselves as a response to God's goodness. As a response to the greater things he has afforded us in his gospel. As a response to the life that we have and the forgiveness that we have and the hope that we have. As a response to the spirit that we have because of him. Our lives are lived out before him as an act of worship. Whether we are talking about our our conduct on a a civic level or a societal level or a relational level or even that individual level when nobody's looking. Every day of my life, every part of my life is lived out for you because you are worth that. This world I don't even belong to? Forget about it. I don't need to respond to that. But you, God, my life will be a response to you That's the pattern that Jesus sets for us, church. And when a life is lived according to that pattern, nothing can hinder it, nothing can hamper it, and nobody can help but take notice of it. Because that kind of life sends a message about the gospel. It shows off the greater things that God is working in us through the power of Christ. And so here's my challenge. And my invitation, you might say, ask yourself this question. How am I living in each of these different roles? Whether it be my response to civic authority or my response to people in my community or my response to people that I'm just close with. How am I living my life? And is it a response to the brokenness and sin that inevitably rests within them? Or is it a response to God and his grace and his goodness? Because this is where we all need to move. We're not perfect. We're going to mess up. Praise God for the grace of Jesus for that. But part of taking our next step closer to Christ is recognizing that our conduct has to reflect the God who has given us such greater things. Let's pray. Lord, it is so tempting and easy to indulge the flesh. And a lot of times we don't even recognize it. But Lord, I pray that you'd open our eyes, that we would see the temptations that emanate from our own hearts, and that we would choose not to indulge those, but to indulge you and your spirit. You have called us to imitate the example of Jesus. So let us throw off this world Let its insults and hardships and frustrations and disappointments roll off our shoulders and let us set our eyes upon the greater things that you have afforded us. Let us revel in your love, in your forgiveness, in the hope that we have in Jesus. And let every part of our lives and every day of our lives be a response to you and your goodness. Let us be a church that shows off who you are, and the greater things you're doing through the power of Jesus. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen.